of all the revelations uncovered in multiple state and federal investigators and investigations to date, the most damning piece of public evidence against Donald Trump and his ongoing legal battles remains this phone call. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. Then President Trump pressuring the Georgia Secretary of State to find him 11,000 votes in order to overturn the election result in that state. The phone call remains shocking, no matter how many times you hear it. But the call was over an hour long. And there are other parts of that call that prosecutors may now be taking a closer look at. For instance, there is this part. So dead people voted. And I think uh, the, the number is in the pro- close to 5,000 people. And they went to uh, obituaries. They went to uh, all sorts of methods to come up with an accurate number. And a minimum is close to about 5,000 voters. That was President Trump insisting, again, to the Georgia Secretary of State, that thousands of dead people voted in Georgia during the 2020 election. Today, the Washington Post reports that one day before that infamous phone call, a report commissioned by Donald Trump's own campaign had found that nowhere near 5,000 dead people had voted in the state of Georgia. According to the Trump campaign's own report at the time, the maximum number, the maximum number of votes that could have been cast on behalf of a deceased person in the state of Georgia was 23, as in 20 plus 3, as in 17 plus 6. But President Trump claimed that 4,977 additional dead person votes had somehow been discovered. 5,000 versus the truth which was 23. The report also found that claims of thousands of dead people voting in other states were similarly baseless. Again, Donald Trump's campaign was given that report the day before he made that call to the Georgia Secretary of State. He was in a position to know that 5,000 dead people did not vote in Georgia, but he said it anyway in order to pressure the Secretary of State. And Trump kept making claims about those phantom dead votes long after that call. Here was President Trump during his speech to supporters on January 6th, just before rioters marched over and stormed the U.S. Capitol. Dead people, lots of dead people, thousands, and some dead people actually requested an application. That bothers me a bit. Not only are they voting, they want an application to vote. Trump used claims his campaign knew to be false in order to rile up the crowd on January 6th. And now we know, thanks to this reporting by The Washington Post, that the report was provided to the Justice Department earlier this month. In other words, Trump's repeated lies about dead voters may soon become a problem for the former president as special counsel Jack Smith examines what Trump knew about the lies he was spreading as he tried to upend the results of the 2020 election. And Smith's is just one of the four major criminal investigations currently hanging over the former president. In addition to the special counsel's January 6th investigation, Trump is also dealing with an investigation into Georgia, in Georgia, one in Manhattan, and another special counsel investigation, again courtesy of Jack Smith, into his handling of classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago. So right now, the one thing Donald Trump really needs is a rock-solid defense team, or teams, plural. 
But instead, his attorneys keep finding themselves in the crosshairs of the investigators. This is attorney Evan Corcoran. He's a lawyer representing Trump in the investigation involving his alleged mishandling of those classified documents. Today, a judge ruled that despite being Trump's lawyer, Mr. Corcoran is going to have to testify before the special counsel. Now, lawyers typically do not have to do things like that because of attorney-client privilege. The only time a judge can force a lawyer to testify is when there's reason to believe that the lawyer aided their client in committing a crime. It's called the crime-fraud exception. And if that sounds familiar, it is, because that is also what happened to Trump lawyer John Eastman, who had to turn over a trove of privileged emails after a judge found that he and Trump more than likely committed crimes in their scheme to overturn the election. So now we have yet another finding by a federal judge that another Trump lawyer may have done too much criming and will now have to get out of his lawyer chair and sit down in the witness chair and start answering questions. And Evan Corcoran is now the, not the only Trump lawyer facing new questions about his behavior. Joe Tacopina is Trump's attorney in the Manhattan DA's hush money investigation into Trump's payouts to adult film star Stormy Daniels, at least for now. Because today, Just Security's Ryan Goodman uncovered several 2018 media appearances by Joe Tacopina, in which he claimed that Stormy Daniels approached Tacopina to represent her. And that could be a problem for Joe Tacopina, because if he did once consult with Stormy Daniels about being her attorney, then Mr. Tacopina has a conflict of interest and could not represent Donald Trump in that hush money case, at least according to New York law. Today, a representative for Joe Tacopina said that his client had never met Stormy Daniels and that someone else approached him on her behalf, and Mr. Tacopina refused the request. But in a 2018 appearance on CNN, Tacopina himself seemed to suggest his legal connections with Stormy Daniels were strong enough to give her attorney-client privilege. Joe, I understand that you had some communication with Stormy Daniels at some point. You know, obviously there's attorney-client issues. Let's put it this way. Um, oh, I was well, contacted. Um, go ahead. Well, 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 I mean, oh, that, well, there was a there was the a Jack. Let him finish. Jack, let him finish. The question, the question I was asked was whether I was contacted or or asked to represent her. Um, the answer is yes, I was, but I can't go into anything further. That potential conflict between Trump's lawyer and Stormy Daniels that could explain why the prosecutors and the Manhattan DA's office spoke with Ms. Daniels earlier this week. And this is an understatement. Now is not the best time for Trump to be having lawyer problems, especially in that case. NBC News is now reporting that law enforcement in New York City is preparing a security plan for the Manhattan Criminal Court with the expectation that Donald Trump could be indicted as soon as next week. Mr. Tacopina has told multiple news outlets that if Trump is indicted, he will surrender himself to authorities. As Tacopina told the New York Daily News, most people would collapse under the weight of this. Joining us now is Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, former federal prosecutor and federal and state prosecutor in New York, and Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor and professor at Georgetown University School of Law. Paul, Tali, thank you for being here tonight. And Tali, I'll start with you just in terms of the JOTAC. There's so many different layers to all of these legal sagas, but let's start first with the one that seems most pressing. JOTAC Apina is President Trump's counsel in this case. And it sort of seems like he may have a conflict of interest here. I mean, can, for people who are not lawyers, can you explain 
how and why that might be the case. Yes. So, Alex, I actually don't see how he continue. He can continue to represent Trump in this case because he has two sets of obligations that are at issue. So one is what you've talked about in terms of his obligations to Stormy Daniels, because there was a time where he represented her. And so that generates a conflict of interest because under the ethical rules, he can't represent someone whose interests are adverse to her, which clearly they this are. is. They're diametrically <laughs> right. opposed. Exactly. And he can't use anything that she told him in confidence in that next representation. Now, she can waive those conflicts and maybe there was some discussion of that mm-hmm. when she met with the Manhattan DA's office. You know, maybe she thought, okay, I mean, I auditioned him. Trump can have him, but that's not the end of it because there's a second set of obligations he has just as an officer of the court. He has a duty of candor. So he can't say something in court that he knows is false. He can't elicit testimony that he knows is false. So he's kind of at a disadvantage compared to a lawyer who comes in fresh and doesn't know what she might have told him. So let's say, for example, that she showed him proof of the relationship. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. He and can't argue in court to the contrary. Right. He can't say they've never, you know, they actually never had an intimate relationship and he can't put Trump or somebody on the stand. I mean, hard to imagine Trump on the stand to get them to say something he knows is untrue. So I just don't see how he can carry on. So he's very limited in the arguments that he could potentially make in all of this. If it in fact ends up at a criminal trial, he's a totally handicapped lawyer at this point. Um, Paul, it's great to see you first of all. And, and secondly, let me just, do you, when you look at the, the, facts that we have. And admittedly, we don't have the full picture here. There's a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't know. But when you hear about Stormy Daniels being asked to meet with prosecutors, does that potentially signal to you that they might, it's not about Stormy Daniels versus Trump, but maybe Stormy Daniels versus Joe Tacopina? I mean, it could be. Again, the question would be if she waived any attorney-client privilege that she had. But as we've heard, that wouldn't be the end of the conversation. If, in fact, there was an attorney-client relationship, then he can't represent Donald Trump. That's a textbook example of a conflict of interest. Uh, Ms. Daniels could well be a prosecution witness against Trump. Trump's defense would have to cross-examine her. The defense attorney could potentially use confidential information he learned from Stormy Daniels when he was considering handling her case. And Alex, that violates the ethics laws of New York State as well as bar rules. I, I, it, it, none of this seems like a positive legal development for the former president, right? Like there is, you know, rumors a swirl about the timing of potential criminal charges. It could happen in the next few days. Mm-hmm. It could be catastrophic to lose your counsel in advance of that or to have him so compromised. For people who don't understand what is happening right now, I mean, what, what is the Manhattan DA trying to sort through at this stage of the game as we talk about the sort of precipice into indictment land? Yeah. So um, we have lots of reason to think that he's close to the end. Uh, I think it's actually even possible that he got an indictment and hasn't filed it yet, which sort of starts the process of an arrest or a surrender. But even if he hasn't, uh, it seems like he's put in all of his main witnesses and the grand jury will just have to vote on what's a relatively straightforward indictment um, and really a single charge. And 
then there are the security and other issues to deal with mm -hmm. uh, because we're talking about a former president and because we're talking about Donald Trump, the former president. So um, he has security needs legitimately because he is a former president. And so there'll have to be some, I think, good faith conversation with the Secret Service about how to bring him in in a way that is safe for him and safe for the courthouse. But that all seems to me really doable, Alex. How does that work, though? I mean, how would you negotiate if, if their responsibility is protecting someone 24 seven? How do you, how do you bring someone in to get arraigned? Okay, well, we've never obviously had yeah. this situation yeah. before, but people with massive security needs have been prosecuted yeah. in open court on much more serious charges. You know, I'm thinking about terrorists. Right. Uh, and so I'm not worried about that. That just seems like a logistical problem that uh -huh. needs to be worked out between the DA's office and the NYPD and the Secret Service. I think the harder questions would come if Trump didn't surrender, which is what most people do when they're charged with a nonviolent white collar crime. You know, they walk in, they don't want to be arrested and have all of that drama. But and he has said so far, Takapina has said that Trump is going to walk in on his own. But if he doesn't and he's in a different jurisdiction, he's in Florida, that could get really complicated really quickly. Yeah. And Paul, I would assume, I mean, there's the, the sort of basic hurly burly of bringing someone in with that amount of security and that someone who is so high profile. Then there are the optics too, right? For the Manhattan DA's office. There's a question of how do you manage this historic moment and not historic necessarily in a good way. I mean, just, it's very complicated, right? That what, what do you think, like, what are the considerations that you think Bragg, the DA, Alvin Bragg needs to make in the context of bringing the first former president ever in for criminal charging? So I'm not expecting a perp walk. I think that Bragg has a difficult responsibility in that he's got to both ignore the politics and be super attuned to them. When someone is charged with a federal crime, they can be arrested, which is when law enforcement officers, in this case, the FBI, go to the person, uh, put him or her in handcuffs, and take them to the station house in order to be booked. Or what happens more frequently in white collar cases is that the person is summoned. That is, they're basically given an invitation they're, or an order to show up to court on a specific day. So I, I think that's the most likely thing to expect with Trump. Can I, I'd love to know from your vantage point, Paul, what you think Jack Smith is looking for in terms of potential restraint on the part of the DA in all of this. You know, the DA's case is quite different from Jack Smith's. It's a state case. It's a mainly, the DA's case is mainly about Donald Trump's conduct before he became president. So I think that the a special counsel is worried that if Trump is charged in multiple jurisdictions in federal court and state court in New York and in state court in Georgia, that could look like piling on. But at the same time, he's got a responsibility for his own jurisdiction for Manhattan to make sure that nobody is above the law, including Donald Trump. It doesn't matter that this is kind of a minor crime compared to some of the other allegations against Trump. Most of the cases that prosecutors bring are misdemeanors. Yeah, I, I, and I understand that, right? That 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 the as the DA told me on set, you know, we're following the facts where they lead us. But I do think that there has to be. I would imagine the special counsel 
would want the least circus-like atmosphere. Well, maybe many people want the least circus-like atmosphere as possible, excepting potentially Donald Trump. I mean, but but the more this becomes chaotic, I just wonder, the, does that further complicate potential indictments down the line? And how much is that a concern over at DOJ? Yeah, I mean, the the order of things is not ideal, really, Alex, because uh, we're talking about someone who's under investigation for much more serious crimes, uh, ranging from election fraud to endangering the nation's security. And this is a, a relatively small, isolated incident that happened seven years ago. And you wouldn't want this to and to ruin the more important opportunities and pursuit for accountability that are happening around the country. But I think everybody knows that they all have independent obligations and mm-hmm. duties to their own jurisdictions, to the victims in their jurisdictions, to pursue their own work. And I think in the end, this one is going to actually be kind of a footnote. The hush money prosecution well, if, in, in the grand in the magnitude, perhaps, of the charging, but in the moment and the 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 history ma- making ADBC line in the sand. No other president, if it, this happens, has been uh, charged with crimes before, right? And no. that will always, if it is Alvin Bragg who goes first, it will always be his name there. I, I got to ask you when we talk about those other investigations, the yeah. fact that Evan Corcoran, yeah. Trump's lawyer, I mean, the fact that we're talking about all of Trump's lawyers having problems is not a great thing when you are under the spotlight legally as the former president is. The fact that Evan Corcoran has been mm-hmm. deemed um, the crime fraud exception has mm-hmm. been invoked in this. Uh, what does that portend for Mar-a-Lago? I mean, is that going to be meaningful or is Evan Corcoran just going to plead the fifth if and when he has to testify? Well, two things. First of all, what it tells me is that they're looking at the obstruction charge because it seems like Corcoran's role was between when the first subpoena for those documents went out in May and the documents had turned up in the search warrant because in between he had written a letter to the DOJ basically saying we did a diligent search and we found everything and then there was more. Uh, so it's not about how the documents got to Mar-a-Lago in the first place, mm-hmm. not that original crime, but was there a cover-up and intentional obstruction of justice after the fact? Uh, so that's important because that charge has been floated around and now it seems they really are pursuing it all the way to its end. Now, if he pleads the fifth, uh, It's interesting because we don't really know that he necessarily has criminal exposure himself. The crime Mm. fraud exception doesn't mean always. It can mean that the lawyer and the client were conspiring together to commit a crime. But it could also just mean that the client was asking his lawyer for advice on how to commit a future crime. And that's not protected by the privilege. And the DOJ might decide they're just going to give him immunity. immunity. Exactly. So exactly. maybe that's that's where this all ends. One exactly. Can, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but I can't remember a time when so many lawyers for the same person had so many problems. Paul Butler yes. and Dolly Farhadi and Weinstein, thank you both for your time this Friday evening. Really appreciate it. Coming up, the presidents of Russia and China plan to meet next week to discuss common goals and the war in Ukraine. That, as our own former president says, the greatest threat to Western civilization is neither Russia nor China. So then who is it? Senator Chris Murphy joins me to discuss all of that and more coming up next. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera 
Whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Today, the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin. The court accused Putin of committing war crimes, specifically saying that he bore responsibility for Russia abducting Ukrainian children. Now, the likelihood of Putin ever showing up for a trial is slim to none. But the timing of the symbolic black mark on Putin well, that is significant because on Monday, Chinese President Xi Jinping is taking his first trip to Moscow since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. She is supposedly there to attempt to broker a peace deal between the two countries. And China does have a lot of power in that conversation. With so much of the globe ostracizing Putin's government, China's support and its willingness to trade everything from microchips to assault weapons, that could make or break Putin's war. Just yesterday, Politico broke the news that in the second half of last year, Chinese companies covertly sent Russian companies 1,000 assault rifles, 12 shipments of drone parts, and more than 12 tons of Chinese-made body armor. Now, China, the country, claims to be neutral in all this. It claims publicly that the country is not providing lethal assistance to Russia. But in China, there is not a huge difference between Chinese companies and the state itself. All domestic businesses in China ultimately answer to this man, Chinese president and authoritarian leader Xi Jinping. Last week, Xi secured an unprecedented third term as president, and he did so unanimously. That was possible because China's state legislature abolished term limits in 2018, thereby allowing Xi to rule for life. If that sounds familiar, it might be, because in 2021, Vladimir Putin passed an incredibly similar law extending term limits to allow him to effectively serve for life. And while President Xi has not been himself criminally charged by the International Criminal Court, like Putin, last year the UN released a report accusing China of human rights violations that may constitute international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity, in China's mass detention of roughly a million predominantly Muslim citizens in Western China. So while the world watches these two leaders meet on Monday, it is worth keeping in mind that they are both authoritarians and neither one of them seems to be a big fan of democracy or self-determination. And what makes that extra concerning for those of us here in the U.S. is that the leaders of the Republican Party don't really seem to mind what's happening here. This week, Florida governor and likely 2024 presidential candidate Ron DeSantis said protecting Ukraine is not a vital U.S. interest. He called Russia's war of aggression a, quote, territorial dispute. And then yesterday, former president and current 2024 presidential candidate Donald Trump said this. The greatest threat to Western civilization today is not Russia. It's probably, more than anything else, ourselves and some of the horrible USA-hating people 
that represent us. These forces are doing more damage to America than Russia and China could ever have dreamed. Joining us now is Chris Murphy, senator from the great state of Connecticut and a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Murphy, thank you for being with us tonight. I would just love to get your, I mean, your level of optimism, if you will, on the Chinese being able to lead and and ultimately broker a peace negotiation between Russia and Ukraine. Should that be should that be taken seriously at all at this stage? I don't think it should be taken seriously, in part because uh, Russia and China are clearly aligned whether or not China is providing Russia with the level of military assistance that Russia wants. Uh, Ukraine is not going to view China as an honest broker. And Ukraine has made very clear that they are um, in this to win, that they are committed to fighting for their sovereignty and their territorial integrity. And the offer that, you know, another dictator who's aligned with uh, Vladimir Putin is going to make to Ukraine is not going to be a very good deal for Ukraine. But there is no doubt that you know China has a very dicey proposition ahead of it. Um, it is not likely that Russia can last through the rest of this year without more significant Chinese assistance. And yet, China knows that its economy still runs based on its ability to sell things into Europe and the United States. And if there were to be um, a more significant military alignment between Russia and China, um, China knows that's going to come with consequences at a moment when they kind of can't bear those economic consequences. The Chinese economy is not in great shape right now. And if there was you know, multilateral sanctions based on their deeper integration with Russia, that would have real consequences for Xi and his hold on power. So uh, I think there's a tough decision ahead for China as to what they're going to do. But Russia has not many other lifelines available to it for the spring, summer and fall besides China. Yeah, you know, and I, I think former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State uh, Danny Russell made that exact point that in some ways, right, the, the pr- purported goal is a peace agreement, but it's also an, uh, to, to curry some kind of favor with a, a, a Western European audience. He says Xi Jinping's target is not Russia or Ukraine, but rather Western Europe. Ultimately, what he's trying to do is set it up so that in the eyes of the Germans and the French, he gave it a shot. He basically needs to give it a college try so that further Western sanctions aren't imposed on the Chinese to the detriment of their economy. I also wonder, though, you know, independent of the Chinese-Russian, the common threads between uh, Chinese and Russian uh, autocrats, there's this lust for um, uh, upending territorial sovereignty. (laughs) And while the Russians are trying to uh, take over Ukraine, the Chinese very much have their eyes set on Taiwan. And I wonder how much you think Russia's success in this endeavor means a lot to China, because China would could maybe see itself doing sort of the same thing with the Taiwanese. I think there's there's two elements here that really matter to the Chinese, and you've identified the first one. So China clearly wants to expand its borders. Its first target is uh, Taiwan. But remember, it's got territorial disputes outside of the Taiwan Straits. For instance, they have a territorial dispute with India. Uh, and they are definitely watching to see, um, A, whether Russia is successful in expanding its borders through force or how much of a price Russia pays. Uh, for that expansion. So there's no doubt that this is a moment where the post-World War II order, which essentially says big nations don't get to expand their borders through military invasion, whether that order is still good. But the second element for China is this. Um, They're just pretty happy when the United States is 
you know, distracted by a fight in uh, Ukraine and Russia. They like that everybody is watching that conflict. It allows them to expand their military and economic influence in Asia. Uh, so they're also interested in just keeping this war going as long as possible to keep both Russia and the United States and Europe focused on that theater instead of watching what China's doing in the Pacific. I, because you brought up what, what is happening in the U.S. vis-a-vis all of the, the, for the, these broader international concerns, I have to ask you about the posture of the Republican Party in all of this. And time and time again, when Republicans are given the opportunity to criticize uh, Putin for his actions, they defer. Or they sometimes actually have admirable things to say about him. The same is not true for President Xi in China. Uh, President Trump seems to have given the party a memo that China is is uh, merits uh, the, the criticism. What, what is it about Putin that Republicans seem to find something. Um, why do they have a home in Putin's actions in Russia in a way that they don't with the Chinese? Is it just Trump's attitude towards each leader? Well, I mean, let's be clear, first of all, that um, it's perfectly legitimate to criticize the U.S. decision to uh, help Ukraine in the fight against Russia. We should be open to having a debate about foreign policy, just like it was legitimate for me to criticize our involvement in the war in Iraq. It's legitimate for Republicans to criticize our involvement with respect to the Ukraine war. But this doesn't feel on the level. I mean, that statement that you played from Donald Trump, in which he suggests that the biggest threat to America is not China or Russia, but Americans who don't agree with him, um, you know, sort of speaks to how dysfunctional this dialogue is right now inside the Republican Party. Here's the big problem. I just think there's a big slice of the Republican Party, not everybody, not all my colleagues in the Senate, but a big slice of the Republican Party that has just given up on democracy, that is so enamored by their leader, Donald Trump, that they are willing to throw democracy to the side if that's what's necessary to keep their people in power. And dictatorships look pretty good if all you care about is power. You don't care about self-determination, democracy, and the vote. And so that, I think, is the genesis of this affection for Putin and for Xi. And I think that is leading to some of this Republican critique of our involvement in Ukraine. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And I think we just have to go into this debate with the Republicans, eyes wide open about what part of their motivation is. Yeah, dictatorships look good if you're the dictator. That's all I'm going to say. Not for everybody else. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you as always for your time tonight, sir. It's great to see you. Thank you. Coming up, the U.S. Capitol Police had some facts to clear up about House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's decision to give those surveillance tapes from January 6th to Tucker Carlson. We'll have more on that ahead. But first, President Trump received a lot of gifts from a lot of foreign leaders during his time in office. What happened to all of them? That's next. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. 
It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Some video content is silver and some video content is gold, like this video content. The president of the United States and members of his cabinet swashbuckling giant swords at a state dinner in Saudi Arabia. We really can't get enough of this video. It was President Trump's first foreign visit as president in 2017. Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, he was also on that trip, and it turns out he got to take some swords home with him. This is one, engraved with pictures of a crescent moon. It comes with its own custom scabbard, wrapped in sheets of gold. The Saudis gave this sword to Jared Kushner as a gift when he visited the country in 2017, and it is priced at around $5,400. The Saudis gifted Kushner a second sword for good measure. It sort of looks like the one Trump was dancing with, and it is valued around $3,000. And look, Jared Kushner is not the first government official to receive a lavish gift from a foreign official. Gift giving is a weird part of diplomacy. But a gift from a foreign leader does not belong to the government official. It belongs to the government. And all government employees, including the president, are required by law to report to the State Department exactly what was given to them, who it was from, and then turn it over to the National Archives for safekeeping. And it turns out when Kushner took those swords from Saudi Arabia, he never officially reported the gift to the State Department, which was not only a Jared Kushner problem. Democrats on the House Oversight Committee released this report today about the handling of foreign gifts during the Trump administration. And according to the report, Donald Trump and his family failed to report over 100 gifts from foreign countries worth a grand total of nearly $300,000. And it really is an odd assortment of stuff, like this $12,000 silk carpet from the president of Uzbekistan and this giant box filled with tableware from the president of Lebanon in case President Trump ever ran out of spoons. Also, this portrait given to Ivanka Trump made out of mother of pearl mosaic tiles. And this fake diamond encrusted falcon from Kuwait, which is sitting on a sort of creepy severed falconer's hand. Also, inexplicably, the statue of pumpkins. Someone must be a big pumpkin fan in the Trump White House. All of these gifts were given to the President Trump and members of his family by foreign governments, and all of them, plus a hundred or so more, were never reported to the government as required by law. The National Archives has since gotten their hands on most of these items, though it remains unclear how many were returned before Trump left office and how many were returned after he left office. But there are still two items that are missing, including a $7,000 set of golf clubs from Japan and what is described as a larger-than-life-sized painting of Donald Trump commissioned by the president of El Salvador, which tells you a lot about Trump's passions, golf and himself. 
coming up. The problems keep mounting for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over his decision to hand over roughly 40,000 hours of January 6th security footage to Fox's Tucker Carlson. New details about what the Capitol Police knew and didn't know about that transaction. That's next. Stay with us. Today, we are learning from U.S. Capitol Police that they found out that Fox News host Tucker Carlson would get access to January 6th Capitol surveillance footage the same way we all did from a news report. The Capitol Police also said that House Republicans ignored the police department's repeated requests to review and approve January 6th security footage prior to its release. According to a sworn affidavit filed today as part of a January 6th criminal case, the Capitol Police General Counsel said that 40 40 of the 40 clips shown on Tucker Carlson's show earlier this month, only one clip was approved because it was similar to one shown at Trump's second impeachment trial. We should note that Capitol Police also say impeachment managers did not clear some of the clips shown at that trial either. Tucker Carlson used the Capitol surveillance footage to spin a narrative that January 6th was peaceful, but video evidence in a separate filing again this week showed yet another moment from that day that was far from calm. It shows just how close rioters were to Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley as officers rushed him off the main floor of the Capitol. Senator Grassley, who was third in line to the presidency that day, told Politico, I wasn't aware of any of it. They just said, we've got to get you out of here. While Senator Grassley initially criticized Trump for his actions on January 6th, he eventually accepted Trump's endorsement and had Trump stump for him at a campaign rally last November. When Grassley was asked about the insurrection last summer, he responded, let go, let God. Today, Speaker McCarthy was forced once again to defend his decision to give Carlson access to that surveillance footage, insisting he asked Capitol Police to flag their concerns about the video. But the speaker has so far said little about his instrumental role in the apparent attempt to whitewash the events of that day. Joining us now is Brendan Buck, former top aide to Republican speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner and an MSNBC political analyst. Brendan, it's always good to see you and a happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Uh, thank I, you. <laughs> thank you. Being 116th Irish as I am. Um, I, I, let me first just ask you, as someone who has experience in the speaker's office, to what degree does the speaker's office heed the requests of the Capitol Hill police? Yeah, it's a really important point. Look, the Capitol police work for the speaker of the house, uh, and I mean I think we should be very clear about that. It is ulti- but ultimately, it is the speaker of the house's responsibility to keep the Capitol safe, and you work very, very closely with the Capitol police uh, in this job. It's something I don't think most people appreciate, um, and. I cannot, it, it's so hard for me having, having sat in the speaker's office for, for two different speakers to imagine that the Capitol Police would just be ignored over something so high profile, something so sensitive, frankly, something so stupid. I can't imagine, I don't understand why they did this in the first place, but especially after everything that the Capitol Police have been through, how sensitive this is, the, the morale issues that the, the Capitol Police are going through. To ignore them for, for something like this was is remarkable to me. I can't, I can't really even fathom it, um, but it obviously shows that this, is, this was not their priorities. Basically, from execution to strategy, everything about this is, has been a disaster for Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. So, I mean, you use the word stupid and disastrous to describe this decision. Do you think Ms. Kevin McCarthy understood at the time what he was doing? I mean, this seems to be part of the devil's bargain he made with the far right wing MAGA caucus uh, in his conference. 
And so he knew, I mean, he knew what he was doing, but do you think he just miscalculated the fallout from all of this? Uh, perhaps. I mean, I think Kevin McCarthy is smart enough to understand that this is not good uh, politics for him. Um, but yeah, I, like, why are we talking about this at all? I mean, I think why, why are House Republicans trying to relitigate January 6th in the first place? We know from the last election, uh, this is an enormous political loser. But it is because Marjorie Taylor Greene and other House Republicans uh, insisted that he do this. And, and so he did. And, and you know, I, I kind of hoped that all of the bargaining that went on uh, uh, to get the speakership would be the end of, of the silliness. But it, clearly, this is uh, something that he felt like he had to follow through on. It's, a, it's an enormous uh, political loser. Um, but hopefully you can turn it around. Hopefully you can tell someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, don't go visit people who are uh, being uh, held for charges uh, for rioting the Capitol, which is apparently what they, what they want to do next. This is not something you want to keep bringing up. This is, this is oh, the, the, really only the purpose, only person who is held by this is Donald Trump. And I don't know why House Republicans feel like that is something they want to spend any political capital on rehabbing him. Well, I, they, clearly, they clearly seem enthralled to the five members that are effectively giving Kevin McCarthy the speaker's gavel, and they determine those five members are, you know, Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and maybe one or two others. The fact of the matter is the January 6th saga is not ending. I mean, the, the reality is the DOJ came out this week and said they are giving they're giving D.C. federal court a head up, a heads up that there are more than a thousand additional people who could still face charges in connection with the Jan 6 attacks. And then you have the Jack Smith special counsel investigation into President Trump's role in January 6. And who knows? I mean, that could end in criminal charges. And yet when you ask Republicans about January 6, you either go, you either get let go and let God from Chuck Grassley, who was very much in harm's way. Ch Jim Risch, senator from Ohio, asked this week, I don't do interviews on January 6, but thanks. Sorry, Idaho. Uh, I don't do interviews on, on January 6, but thanks. I mean, they they have no line. They, they just don't want to talk about it. And it is not going away. I mean, how does the party ultimately formulate uh, uh, its response to this in a way that's not a lie? I wish that they were just trying to let it go away, but they're, they're trying to bring it back up. I mean, that's my, my biggest problem. And look, it wasn't even a, a clever argument that Tucker Carlson made. You know, we, we've heard this from some kooky House Republicans before that this wasn't a big deal. I don't know who you're trying to convince that this wasn't a big deal other than people who only live in that sort of um, ecos, that, that media bubble on the right, or people who are, you know, die hard for Donald Trump. You just look silly trying to say that this was not a big deal, uh, maybe worse than silly, uh, you look craven in, in some ways. Uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, this is not going away. It's still uh, front and center for, for a long time. And if your position as a party is that this was okay, look, what happened with, with these videos, it, it, the, the real risk here is I don't think is, is security. I think it's the propaganda. It's convincing people that you can continue to do more stuff like this, that this was okay. It just cements the, a party that cannot be taken seriously. And at some point, you need leaders to step in and say, Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't setting the agenda for us. We need to act like adults. Indeed. Um, Brendan, I know that being uh, here Friday night of St. Patrick's Day is not how you thought you would, maybe would be spending this day or this evening. And I deeply appreciate your time tonight. Have a pint on me, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for your time. We will be right back. 
So this is something. Florida state legislators are considering a bill that would ban the improper display of flags in and around government buildings. On Tuesday, Republican State Senator Jay Collins filed an amendment to have roughly a dozen flags exempted. His list included the U.S. flag, the Florida state flag, the flags of foreign nations, sort of standard stuff. But near the very bottom of his list of flags to be exempted from the proposed ban was the flag of the Confederate States. Okay, then. Collins' list notably does not include the rainbow pride flag. This is, after all, Florida, the state that passed the Don't Say Gay law. And that, in fact, may very well be the whole point of this legislation. At least that is what many of its opponents suspect. Now, the exemption for the Confederate flag, that was pulled from consideration less than 24 hours after it was filed. And that is because, according to Senator Collins' office, the amendment was a draft and it was filed in error. And any insinuation that Collins might be a Confederate sympathizer is disgusting. There was no further explanation about how the flag of the Confederate states ended up on that list of exemptions. But that sure seems like a gigantic typo if that was what it was. Former Democratic State Senate Minority Leader Arthenia Joyner, who led the effort to get the Confederate flag removed from Florida's Florida's official seal, had this to say about Collins' mistake. Quote, I don't believe for a second that it was done in error. How do you erroneously file an amendment? I've done plenty of amendments in my 16 years. I've never heard of it. That is the show for this evening.